Aloha. You are listening to the Dangerous Love Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Ford. And today we have a special guest coming to us all the way from Maryland, Colette Rausch. Colette brings over 25 years of experience helping build cohesive, just, secure, and resilient societies. She's a former prosecutor, defense attorney, rule of law specialist, mediator, facilitator, trainer, and a trauma and stress resolution practitioner, which is what we're going to talk a lot about today. She has quite an interesting background. She initiated the United States Institute of Peace's Afghanistan program, and that uh, working with the Taliban at the fall of the Taliban in 2001. She also launched the U.S. Institute of Peace's Burma program uh, as well, and so some really great international experience as well. She's also working on a book with a group of neuroscientists and peace builders that I'm really interested in. The working title is Neuroscience, Violent Conflict and Peace Building, Exploring the Neurobiological Dimensions of Violent Conflict and the Peace Building Potential of Neuroscientific Discoveries. We'll talk a little bit about that uh, as well today. And she is joining George Mason University's Carter School for Mary Hodge Center for Reconciliation, uh, my alumna, uh, actually. Uh, as a research affiliate to focus on reconciliation, neuroscience, and trauma. That's quite an impressive resume, Colette, and uh, we're really excited to have you on the podcast. Welcome aboard. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Why don't we start uh, the question that I'm always really fascinated in in this world is, why are you doing what you're doing? Like, what motivated you in life to take on this really fantastic career path I think we have some things in common. We started in law um, and ended up sort of working internationally. But I'm really curious if you could just walk us through your journey um, to where you are today. Sure. Um, I think it kind of goes down um, two paths. One, really, like a lot of us, it was rooted in um, my childhood and um, had a very great childhood. And then at a certain period, like many families, it it was affected by divorce and domestic violence. And so I think going to law school, when I look back, it's not like I thought about this when I embarked upon going into law school, but when one looks back on one's path and starts to connect the dots, it, it became clear to me that what I was looking at was, you know, why is it that there's conflict and why is there violence um, within families or communities? And so I think that's what got me interested in um, the criminal justice field. And I think at some point as a prosecutor, this may seem a little naive now, but I actually thought, wow, if you work really hard and you figure it all out, we can, we can stop crime. Um, you know, I can admit that. And I think that's what drove me at that point. Um, so that's what carried me through for probably just about, you know, the half of my career. And then I shifted into international work. And I really look at that as being an extension of, how, you know, why is there violence? Why is there conflict? But looking at it within more of a global context. And what led you to Afghanistan? Um, I mean, that's a really fascinating place to be. Did you have any connection to the country or how did that, how did that start? No, I was um, working for the Justice Department in Kosovo, and I was about ready to end my position there where I was working on justice, security, and rule of law reform, and uh, I was uh, brought on to the U.S. Institute of Peace. And it was at that time, around 2001, that Afghanistan, it was right after 9-11, and right after the U.S. Um, took action in Iraq as well as in Afghanistan. And so the Institute of Peace, being an independent federal agency whose mission is peace building, was directly engaged in Afghanistan. So I, that's what I did. Got on a plane to look at what within the rule of law field could we work on in order to work on peace building within that country. Was uh, you you were in Kosovo before, so you you clearly had you clearly had been in in sort of post conflict or you know frankly <laughs> you know the conflict is still going on there. Talk about that transition because I know that for a lot of practitioners that are working in the field, uh, I'm I'm interested in how this connects to trauma as well because you start to it's you both experience a high level of the people that you're working with that are suffering with trauma as well as it can be quite. Tra traumatic on the actual peace building uh, practitioners on the ground as well to be working in these sorts of environments. 
Yeah, absolutely. And when I um, went to Kosovo and even Bosnia before that, my first, my first um, position overseas was in Bosnia as a justice department um, legal advisor. And there were experiences there that just as you described, here we were asked to go and do some very technical things within rule of law. Things like, well, you know, everything will be better with rule of law and creating justice if we pass some laws, if we train some judges, if we work on reforming the institutions that have not been um, Metting out justice, but maybe benefited one group or over the other. And so there are very technical things. And so while that's very important, and while those are things that absolutely needs to be done in a society, it was apparent to me that there are other factors there and throughout a lot of the work that I did, the more human dimension and the trauma that happens to individuals and communities and organizations when um, violent conflict occurs. And as you mentioned, it became apparent to a lot of us, probably not soon enough for many of us, but that we were picking up some of that um, trauma. And you started to see over the years, um, conflicts between colleagues. You started to see, um, you know, people going to um, habits with drinking or other things to try to, to cope with it. So you saw a lot of trauma within the systems in which we were working, as well as trauma within those who were coming into those systems um, to work, you know, on peacemaking or peace building or, or reform efforts. It's it's so fascinating to hear your story. It's in so many ways, there's a lot of similarities with mine because I started in law school with the same idea. I'm not really understanding. There wasn't much of a academic peace building field at the time to go into. So you start to think about, well, where, where can I make a difference in the world? I was thinking about human rights law and, you know, really getting involved with that. But you know, maybe it was my my experience came a little bit earlier at Georgetown with an experimental law program that was bringing in some professors from Yale and others that were really looking at larger, larger issues around the law as opposed to the technical ones. But it became pretty clear to me for early on that the, the law is really important and it can do some really, really important things, but it doesn't change people's hearts per se. And if people's hearts aren't going to change, uh, many of these conflicts become reoccurring. And they're, they're happening over and over and over again. And that if you really want to get to the root of, of some of these conflicts, and you really want to think about sort of sustainable conflict transformation, as opposed to conflict management, which, you know, the law can actually do a pretty good job at, um, it's going to take, take more of an effort uh, of getting into the, the humanity uh, of the conflict and the di dynamics that human brings that beings are bringing to it, not just the sort of structural elements of the conflict. Yeah, absolutely. And I loved that part of your book <laughs> that I read this weekend, because when you dove into the concept of conflict resolution, which some folks feel like, okay, we have to stop there or manage it. It's just too big, too impossible. And I would say, well, maybe at that point, that's where one needs to get, but ultimately one wants to get to a transformative effect and resolution um, doesn't get there, but reconciliation and um, transformation does. And like you mentioned, I think also, um, as you were describing kind of the human, the human part of it, I think sometimes we look at this, we're human beings, but we're going to be doing human, we're human doings. And so it's busy, 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 and do, 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 and work harder and pass more laws and do more training. And I like to say it's almost as if we're operating with just our heads, like, you know, just bubble heads, forget what is happening beneath the, you know, your neck with your heart and your nervous system and all those things that make up the human body, forget all that, and just work with the intellect. And I think we're seeing we can't think our way out of this. We're going to have to, and our bodies are not, and our brains and our nervous system with the neuroscience of it is not even built that way. So we really have to use our whole system if we're going to get through these and have more transformative effects in societies. It's, uh, it's really cool. And I can't wait to talk a little bit more about your book and, and some of the research that you're doing here, because as I was putting together my book and, and this was for a general audience, not necessarily for an academic audience, Dangerous Love was, this idea is a conflict mediator that fear so often is the 
is the motion that I would describe that gets in the way of ever moving past anything like conflict management or maybe conflict resolution, right? This fear of what's going to happen to me, um, that, that I'm going to fail, that this is going to hurt me in some, some ways, that any conflict style that isn't just totally about a protective sort of fight or flight, flight or fight uh, mechanism is, is going to be dangerous um, to me. And that the big effort that I had to come in as a mediator is convincing people that conflict doesn't have to be that way and that, that, that actually we can engage with each other in, in positive ways. That, that is the mountain that you have to climb. And if you can climb that mountain, it's actually kind of downhill from there. It actually, once people can switch their mindsets and, and, and respond to conflict differently, it has a very big effect. But the, the hard part is that's a very big mountain to climb. Yeah, absolutely. And it relates also to our own fear, where I remember even there was one uh, dialogue in Nepal, and we were bringing together um, police, and we were bringing together human rights defenders, community members, professors, journalists, right after uh, the, the king had stepped down. After, it was still the Civil War period was winding down, there was going to be a peace agreement. And there had been massive people's protest and a lot of um, there had been deaths of protesters. So emotions were very high on the police side as well as the um, the human rights defenders and all the civil society. And I remember when I was there to facilitate what was going to be a discussion on what could be done to strengthen justice securing rule of law. And as you can imagine, emotions were high, you could feel it in the room, I could feel it in my body at the time. And I started to get nervous, like, oh no, you know, what's gonna happen here? So I was afraid to let to to let that move and to work with it. And it was wonderful because one of the, you know, this was many years ago, and a lot of these experiences have led me today to work more squarely on the trauma piece. But one of the police officers that I'd worked with came and whispered to me and he says, We can handle it. Let us, let us work through it. We need to work through it. Let us, let us do it. So I pulled back and then we worked on appointing a couple co-facilitators and the emotion in the room worked through over the day. So I think it's also those of us who come to it sometimes are uncomfortable. It's like, no, let's just get back to manage. <laughs> of course. That's a brilliant, I love that story, by the way. And it's, it's, it's a really brilliant thing that and I can't wait to get in talking more about this because it being alive to trauma there also can be a fear of trauma or a fear of more trauma happening to people and this fine line you walk as a conflict mediator and someone working in the space that we have to address the issue we have to look at it we can't run from it we can't hide from it yet we want to do it in a way that doesn't create um, you know, more pain or suffering, but then sometimes there needs to be a little bit of that, that emotion coming out and, and figuring out how to balance all of that. Um, it, it really is what makes really good mediation, I think, one of the harder, harder jobs in the world uh, to do because you're balancing so many things and so many emotions and, and trying to create space and trying to create process um, that's going to work for people in, in, in a space where there's, there's a lot of, there is a lot of potential for trauma and a lot of stuff that people carry into the room with them. Oh, absolutely. And the whole guidance of do no harm and you hit it perfectly. How do you do no harm and balance this to where you're moving forward, not causing harm, but also trying to move through this process. And, uh, and it, it makes it really hard. It also means at times we're going to fail. I mean, you know, one of the things I tell people about my job is that, that this doesn't always work. As much as I wish I could say there's a hundred percent success rate, uh, there's there's not, and there's so many factors that are involved, and 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 really exploring that. So I, I want to get to some of this because that a lot of the reaction that I've gotten to dangerous love has been, wait, this is dangerous, <laughs> right? Like uh, you know, of course that's the topic, but this is really dangerous. And what does happen when I've gone through trauma as part of conflict? whether that's in, in a past conflict and I'm bringing, I'm bringing that trauma into that, it's unresolved trauma that I'm bringing into a new relationship or to a new conflict, or trauma has been caused because of the particular conflict that, that I'm in, all right? I mean, both factors are often 
um, at play. And so the, the very thought of turning first, which we talk about in our book, or thinking about reconciling uh, with a person is, is so scary, the wall so high, because I have been hurt in the past. I have experienced trauma. It, it, it almost feels wrong to be telling me I should re-engage with my enemy here when I'm still suffering or feeling so much pain. And I'm really curious what your research has, has shown about sort of trauma and peace building and, and both, and, and how to walk that line. Yeah, no, those are really important um, considerations. And I think primarily it goes back to understanding at a fundamental level, how we are wired as human beings. And it's really looking at the neurobiology of trauma um, and looking at the fact that as humans, whether you know, we've had relationship challenges, whether we've um, you know, worked in war zones, wherever we are, no one is immune from having trauma. It's a fact of life. So the first thing really is how can we normalize it and understand it? And understanding, like you mentioned, the turning first and the fear, understanding that we may try to logically talk ourselves out of the fear. We may do a lot of things. We may think this is counterproductive. We may know that at an intellectual level, but our body is saying, nope, so sorry, not happening here. And so when we understand why our body is doing that, that at the end of the day, it's there to keep us safe. Our brain is a control tower trying to keep all the experiences we had some of it which makes it even more difficult could be you know in childhood or even there's studies now on the in in the womb there's studies on intergenerational trauma and epigenetics and the passing of trauma on the genome so there's a lot of research so if you think about it from that there could be things that we even if we were could do it intellectually it doesn't exist because you didn't have that resource, um, you know, when when you were in the womb or when you're a child. So the way to tap into that is understanding the nervous system, how it's to keep us safe. How, as you mentioned, the fight, um, the flee, the the um, shutting down. These mechanisms are there to keep us safe. And I think that once we do that, then that can take a lot of maybe the guilt or the shame or the stigma away from some of those the things that block us. So understanding that, knowing that that's human, and then working with that system. So what would you say to someone? Uh, I know we, you could probably talk for hours about that, about understanding our nervous system and understanding sort of this response. But what would be your basic sort of primer to help people who are struggling with trauma sort of understand what's, what is going on right now in their brain and why they're react, why they're, their, their brain might be willing, but their body isn't, um, right? Uh, what, what is going on? Yeah, normally what I might do, again, it depends upon where somebody is in their, in their lives, what they've experienced. You know, if it's an immediate crisis, we may not even get into that. It may just be stabilizing. Like if it's a, um, you know, a tsunami, right after a tsunami or something, you might work with somebody a little bit differently. If there's somebody who has long-term child um, developmental challenges, abuse, that might be a little different. But one thing that I would work with is one on the education piece explaining the way we're wired, the neurobiology of trauma, understanding it, and then doing certain things like starting to notice. I call it kind of finding the space in between an impulse or a sensation or a feeling or an emotion and a reaction. So to the extent that little things like a pause, um, you know, putting something on pause where one can, because so many times these reactions are embedded in our system. If we were hurt by something, before we can even logically do something, our body may respond. It's reacting quicker in a way than we could have stopped it. So the extent that we start to know our patterns and know how we respond, what are the things like our buttons that get pushed? And can we just, can we be aware of it? Like, for example, um, if I'm, you know, my, my son, who is a teenager and in high school now, and if he, I go in and I'm bringing him something or, you know, and he snaps at me, 
you know, mom, get out. What are you doing? You're interrupting me. Not that he does this. Not that he does this. Yeah, no, teenagers don't do this. This never <laughs> happens to parents um, when we walk into the room as teenagers. You know? Exactly, exactly. It's purely my, hypothetical. It's purely hypothetical. And my system may immediately want to just snap. Like, wow, you know, all the things I do for you, you know, I'm helping you. I'm busy too. Da, da, da. That's an immediate response. So what I could do is as he says it, which is going to want to tweak my system to then respond, and then he responds and I respond, is to try to just pause, notice what's coming up in my system. I might notice the tightening of the chest. I might notice, um, you know, an emotion in my throat. And I don't even have to try to make sense of it, of what may have happened in the past that led to this or whatever. I don't need to go into that. I can just notice that system and be with it observe it and let that pass. That's a very small, you know, example. It's giving your system a chance to let your brain and thinking part come back online. Because when we're triggered, it's your body saying, I got this, I'm going to protect you. Creative brain up in the, you know, the area of the brain that's thinking and creative and problem solving. Just be quiet for a minute. I got it. So it's just giving that moment of time to let that come back on and your system to settle. It's, um, I, I found uh, where a lot of usefulness is, is coming. We've actually been doing more and more of it. My wife practices mindfulness and yoga is, is setting up sort of mindfulness sessions because so much of mindfulness is about getting back in tune and noticing emotions. You don't have to do anything with that emotion, but just to notice it, to set with it, to breathe through it and allow yourself to feel things, but not necessarily have to sort of act. Um, on those things. And it's just such a useful um, tool that I found in lots of my conflict endeavors now that we're just going to, we're going to practice meditation a little bit. We're going to practice breathing. We're just going to practice a few things and we're going to allow ourselves to feel things without um, necessarily having to make sense of them right away. Or like you said, giving ourselves permission not to just act on it. Um, right? When the, when the feeling is so strong <laughs> to, to, to act on it, right? Which is what causes, we talked about later in the book, collusion and these sort of active and reactive cycles that start to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then there's the um, dynamic of teasing apart. As I mentioned, some things are a crisis environment, like immediately after a car accident, there may be certain things one might do um, that may be different than my example with my son. And then there's a whole different context of if you're looking at some really um, cumulative trauma or trauma that has not been resolved after many years, because in an ideal world, if we experience something, the nervous system will come up, it'll address what it needs to do, it'll go on, and we will move forward. And we won't necessarily, just because there's a trauma does not mean we have a trauma effect. It could clear because our systems are made to do that. In the cases where it doesn't, and it could affect somebody long term, where then you know they're not sleeping, or there's a pattern of um, conflict, you know, active conflict. You'll see some of this in sometimes in aid organizations. Everyone's has there's there may be a lot of unresolved chronic stress and maybe some trauma mixed in, and there's lots of turbulence in the relationships in the aid organization. And I'm sure with the work you've done, you've seen this. Of course, yeah. The, the peace organizations are sometimes the least peaceful organizations you work with. But, and, and people see a hypocrisy there, but I don't see a hypocrisy at all. I think it has so much to do with the context with it, with, in which they're engaged on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, absolutely, absolutely. And so then in an ideal world, like I have this vision, I'm an idealist. And although it gets, you know, it gets tested a lot, but I'm an idealist. And it's like, wouldn't it be cool if we had um, people that when depending upon what kind of trauma, you know, situation, we had people who could help provide support, a sense of safety, and a safe container to help move through that and resolve where it gets stuck and that would be and starts having long-term cumulative effects you know it's really interesting that when we think about a marriage or a, a, a child parent relationship and maybe even sometimes in organizational context it's it's easier to imagine how you can put a response in that includes 
you know, trauma therapy or, or ways to sort of work through this. You've been working on a large international scale where an entire country might be experiencing um, trauma. I work a lot in the Middle East. I work a lot with Israelis and Palestinians. And, and one of the things that I've really noted is the, the entire country is in, in many ways psychological regression. That uh, They're all experiencing huge amounts of stress, of fear, of trauma, some of it historical trauma. Um, that is well, you know, is talked about, but not necessarily dealt with as well as day-to-day -day, um, issues that come up. When you're thinking about those larger engagements, which you've been involved in in your life, how do you address that when it seems to be not just happening with a, a an individual, but in society? And I, I think you look in the United States right now with what's happening in the wake of George, George Floyd's murder and, and, and the protest and the reaction from the police and everything else, and you're seeing so much pain and trauma uh, from so many people, but not necessarily any mechanism in which to sort of address that or really resolve it. Yeah, no, th this is the fundamental question for really our time, as you mentioned in our country, um, in the world. And I've done a lot of thinking about this and, and struggling um, with this over the years, trying to figure out, you know, what door, what are the pieces? Is there some sort of strand that one could pull on? And then it would be like the whole ripple effect. And where I've kind of landed right now, and obviously, like you said, we're, we're all learning and we're growing, where I am at this point of time is I look at it really with three levels. And one is at the individual level. What is it that I can do with my own things? What can I do to clear and to address whatever stress and trauma within my nervous system and within my environment? Because what we do know is humans ping off of each other. And, and it, because it's for survival, we walk in a room and we sense and pick up if there's danger. Sometimes it comes, information comes through all of our senses before we're making judgments and we may pull back or we may you know, respond a certain way. So it's the individual level. And then not just what we do with ourselves, but what we, how we hold ourselves in the world. And things like how we engage with people at the store, how we engage with kindness and understanding, because that can affect the, our ecosystem. And then that can ripple out to families. And then on the second level really is what can communities, organizations, leadership in these organizations and these communities, what is their role? Because for better or worse, we do, we are affected, as I mentioned, by other people's systems. And so what, how is, how is that leader showing up in the community? How is that leader of an organization showing up? What are they, are they taking care of their stuff and their issues and their stress? Are they creating an enabling environment? That's another piece. And then the third piece touches a little bit about what we're talking about. It's the structures. And, you know, when we all know that we're all affected by how, what laws that are laws that guide us, the structures, the systems, the justice system, and as you mentioned, the U.S. within the policing system. And so at the end of the day, society and structures play a role. So, you know, racial trauma and, you know, you've seen overseas in the work we've done, marginalization and dehumanization of certain groups, that inflicts trauma. And so what are we doing to address these kind of systemic and structural drivers and these things that we may not even be aware of, biases that can be, you know, unconscious bias? And we're, are we really looking at what we're doing and our part of it? So it's really, there's three layers, but it's all part of an ecosystem. And the community affects the individual, the individual affects the community, and all of our systems and institutions absolutely um, play a role. I really love that. Uh, it's something I've been wrestling with as well, I think, because we're in the, this, this same work. And at one level, our work is very individual. Even when we're working internationally, I'm working with people. And, you know, this is something that's lost. You know, you say, oh, you're, you're working with terrorists. Well, they're people. And every single one of them has a story. Every single one of them has a reason that they've gotten to the point that they've gotten at in this conflict. 
Uh, all of them have families some way or, or another. All of them have justifications for why what they're doing is helpful or good uh, for their community. And so I, I never, it never gets lost on me that in, in one way, the work is always one-to-one. It's always individuals. Um, but at the same time, you see the power that communities, groups, and then the more invisible sort of structures have on those individuals in ways that we're often not alive to or even aware of and, and, and the ways that they're contributing to that. And it can feel really overwhelming. And it, it's, it's, really, it's really, I love this idea of it being an ecosystem and sort of understanding that all of these parts are connected to each other and you can't ignore one and just sort of focus on one thing. Uh, that you have to sort of think about how they all interact and interplay with each other and adjusting one, unfortunately, what happens is the other two sort of compensate often and 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 feel that fill that gap, right? And so we learned this a lot when we were working with youth in the Middle East that we were doing this great job um, working with them on an individual level, but we were with them for you know three, four hours a week. And the rest of the time, their environment, their family, their school, everything else was pulling in a very different direction. And we were going to lose that battle if we didn't start to address some of the other, both family and group dynamics that were happening, as well as sort of create in, in small ways, uh, uh, structural changes that, that could invite more space. And, and so that's one of the ways I already think about is how do you create space? I love John Paul Lederach and his work, The Moral Imagination, and this, this idea of how do we imagine spaces uh, that can provide this sort of healing and sort of think about this both on the individual, a group, and then ultimately at a structural level. Yeah, absolutely. And what you were saying um, really resonated with me that it includes everybody because, you know, I remember um, whether it was domestic when I was representing death row inmates in their appeal hearings and um, some of my former prosecutor colleagues were appalled <laughs> that I was working with death row inmates, but I was working on their appeals and it's, I'm not saying that there's not accountability and that, um, you know, I was working on the sentencing appeal, but the, in trying to remove the death part of the the penalty the person was still did did kill somebody admitted that they killed somebody but i looked at their childhood and i looked i mean it was just to see what had happened and what brought them to what you know to where they were and again it doesn't mean there's not accountability but we have to understand that story and look how that is feeding in and where the systems um did not address a lot of the things that happened in that childhood you know, the abuse, the, the things that had happened. And then same like in Nepal and other, other countries. I mean, I will work with everybody and because everybody has to be part of the solution. And even people where some might say, how could you ever work with them? You know, work with everybody within, I will say within, of course, the bounds of our laws <laughs> that, you know, there's some limitations where funding can go, but in a peace process. And I remember in Nepal, as a matter of fact, um, a lot of people did not want the Maoists to be part of it. And the reason they ended up being part of the dialogue is because the police themselves were saying, because they were being pragmatic, we have to have them at the table. Because if we don't, then we can't address the system. You know, so we want them there and we will manage it. And it, that was a very powerful statement. This has been a, this is really poignant as we think about um, criminal justice and law enforcement reform in the United States that, um, and I've been quite involved over the last you know, few months talking to folks on all sides of this, um, how often in conflict we feel like the, the solution lies externally to us. And so it's the police that need to change and I'm gonna tell you how you change. And if you don't change the way that I tell you to, then you know everything's off and it's gonna fail. But of course, you know that that actually is not gonna work, that the police are not, going to just take some sort of external uh, mandate about sort of how to change when they don't feel like the people on the ground who are asking it understand their jobs or understand their lives or understand you know, what's going on or on vice versa, law enforcement just saying, this is what needs to happen and we don't need any input from the outside when we are policing people and communities. And if we don't understand what their needs and wants and desires are and how we're perceived 
we can't be effective the way that we think that we're going to be effective. And so to, so to also sort of look at the outside and say, again, externally, they just need to change and they don't need to tell me about anything. That, 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 is, that has been really fascinating to me. It happens at all levels, by the way, it happens in marriage conflict that, you know, our, our solution to our problem also is always sort of external. It, it's always about someone else or some, something else sort of changing. And when something else or someone else changes, my life gets easier. And that's not recognizing the, my role that I also play in the ecosystem. And so I really like when you're thinking about this from a peace builder, we've called this bringing peace into the room, right? I also bring something into the room. Uh, William Urey talks about the third side and this idea that, you know, conflict is three-sided in those things, but everybody brings something into the room. And so I want to talk about resilience because that's the other, other side of trauma to me. And so a lot of times when I hear people are going through trauma, they're going through trauma, you got to create safe space. We can't ask for too much or what have you. But the point I think of coming out of trauma is to create resilience, right? So that we can actually move forward so that we actually can engage in this sort of creative act that includes me being part of it and showing up. And so how do we get better at helping ourselves and others strengthen that resilience when they have experienced trauma. And you, you talked about some of the initial ideas about how I respond to trauma and becoming educated, but how does that translate into the sort of resilience and the courage and the strength to show up and sit with my enemy, um, to, to work towards reconciliation as opposed to just sort of conflict management? Yeah, so I look at um, resilience in the prevention mode as well as, um, well, actually, I'd say three. One is prevention. One are just what are some of the things that we can do to build our resilience. And then the third is what some researchers have talked about is the concept of post-traumatic growth. So on the preventive side, I look at what can I do as an individual just to have my, my nervous system um, be in the best place possible. And it's simple stuff like getting sleep, balancing our work, having connections with other human beings and our family, eating properly, taking, you know, whatever we need to do, whether it's exercise or, you know, meditation, whatever works for us within our culture, within our systems, that's what we do. Because that's what allows kind of our nervous system to have the best chance of when we get into those dialogues, or we get into a space where we there might be conflict, or our buttons pushed, we're not running on things that are, you know, keeping the nervous system um, agitated. Which is really, it should be, it should seem like it's easy because it's self-care, but it's actually really, really hard for it's people. really hard. I, I'm one. That I'm, I'm terrible at it. And uh, my family talks to me about it all the time. I tell people all the time about self-care and all these sort of preventive things. I don't do them myself uh, all the time. And so it is actually, it sounds so easy. Like that's the easy part, right? Eat, get some sleep, eat, eat stuff, take care of yourself a little bit, take a bath, um, exercise, relax a little bit, like all the stuff we say that we want, but it's actually really hard to do um, sometimes, especially when we get in, in sort of destructive patterns. Oh, absolutely. And the thing is too, the reality is, I don't think anybody does it perfectly. And so the whole point is here's a, here are lots of different things. If one can just do honestly one thing a day, like when I, there was a period of time um, when I did not do self-care, blew through all the gates, you know, all the warning signs the body gives you like, hello, hello, until I hit, you know, the wall straight into a serious case of pneumonia where I almost was in the hospital. And so that's the body saying, okay, you're not going to listen we'll make sure that you get the rest you need. So coming back from that, I was building up from zero. So I, I would do just a little thing. My nervous system was so off from, you know, working overseas, not taking care of myself, doing this book, um, this book that I had um, worked with a number of my colleagues on called Speaking Their Peace. It's a number of stories from people in war zones. And as you know, you've done books, reading all those stories, it was starting to stick. You know, I'd already done a lot of the interviews, reading them. It was sticking um, in my system. And so if I could just that day get up and do one little app for 10 minutes, that was good for the day. So a lot of it is if we try to do simple things that become habits and not judging oneself or beating oneself up, which is hard to do. Like I'm saying things as I say it, I'm like, yeah, right. You do that every day. So I'm just, <laughs> but little steps um, 
Yeah, and and the part about um, how we might deal with some of our trauma, um, there are kind of two angles to that. One is what we might do in programs or what we might do if we're a leader in an organization and then what we might do for ourselves. So in the organization, for example, what I used to do um, with my team when um, I was at the U.S. Institute of Peace is when we were doing staff meetings and I knew we were, everyone was, you know, mission driven and I knew nobody was going to take a break. And I knew people like I was annoyed that somebody would ask us to take a break because we have important work to do. Right. And so we just did once a month, we did these staff meetings where it was, it was called choice day and you'd pick a card uh, and the card would have on it a walk it would have a meditation session, it would have reading quietly, or it have talking with your, you know, colleagues. And at first, you know, some people felt a little uncomfortable, and then it became the favorite part of the, the meetings that we had, the, that little break that people got. So you do those things, so the system starts to know what it's, what it's like to have those breaks. And then once you have that felt sense, it's much easier to start building upon that, um, that that felt sense. From the individual level, um, when we talk about transforming trauma, um, there, you know, there's, there are a lot of methods that um, have been researched. And how I kind of say, how I talk about it, what I would say is people need to pick what resonates with them and where they are. So for some people, more cognitive approaches and talking through things and coming up with um, strategies might be helpful at one time. Doing mindfulness might be helpful. The, the type of trauma transformation I was trained in is body-based and it's called somatic experiencing and it's really looking at the body and where things might get stuck and working through those um, processes to try to, to, try to slowly um, work through some of trauma that might be stuck. And some people, there's spiritual practices, um, there's cultural um, things that come into play. So I'm very hesitant when someone says, what is something I should say? I would tell them, you know, here, here are a number of different things. And when I train on this, I'll do a list. Here are all the things. And you need the most important thing is to meet the person where they are. Because sometimes, like for example, if you're working with people who are working in war zones or in high stress environments, it may not be the time to ask their nervous system to start doing some deep trauma work because that could be harmful where they need to be alert and they're they're at a different place. So meeting them where they are, sometimes it's just stabilizing. Sometimes meditation can provide a stability for then another time where you might do some more deep trauma work, some, some work um, with people in that way, if that makes sense. Any other, any other tips about this, this, again, this resilience? Cause I, it's really interesting because when people are asking that question, they, they want to improve the relationships in their life. They, they want to be able to move forward. But again, that, you know, having the feeling like I have the strength, um, you know, to get there. Um, and you talked a little bit about this sort of post-traumatic um, being able to sort of move forward um, at post-trauma. Any, anything else that you would like to, to share with our listeners today about, about steps that they could take. Yeah, this, this to me is probably um, a very important kind of umbrella foundational thing is to be gentle with oneself and to be compassionate with oneself because it's so easy to be frustrated and want to move ahead. And it's that exact pushing of oneself that kind of stymies it. So being gentle with oneself, being accepting of oneself when it happens. And then if we're kind of stuck in this push and play or the spin cycle, as I say, where it's, you know, stimuli, reaction, stimuli, reaction, that's where we wanted to kind of take a step back, sense what's going on, as we talked about earlier, and then just be curious about that. And then maybe reach out to um, somebody who could work through some of those emotions and feelings to renegotiate that experience. Because what happens oftentimes is our brain um, is predicting things. So we'll have experiences. And then when something else in the future comes up that's like that experience, 
we might be predicting, ah, I've been here, I've seen this movie before, this is dangerous, you know, I'm going to respond a certain way to the situation. So we need to renegotiate that entanglement with the past and the present so that we're responding to that person in the present moment based upon what's happening in front of us. And it's not tied to past things that have happened or some sort of threat. And this may sound extreme, but sometimes things like in a relationship, someone might say, why is someone responding in such a big way with so much power and anger over something that I did? And it's not understandable because it seems disproportionate for something that a partner did or in a negotiation, another person that you're negotiating with did. But if it's linked to something that was very threatening or from a past experience, then that person feels like they are at threat. So it's also understanding that our system may be responding to things that are not necessarily present, but is, is responding to something that it feels is, is um, dangerous. I, I love this idea of being gentle. And, you know, one of the things that I think a lot about is we, we know that the best relationships in our life are reciprocal in some nature, right? Um, kindness begets kindness. We also know it goes both ways, right? That if I'm angry, I'm, I'm often like to trigger that. And so for, for some people, being able to practice kindness with themselves, but not with others is a challenge or vice versa. Sometimes being able to, I can practice kindness with others, but I can't practice it um, with myself. And to sort of look at the mutuality of that relationship, if I can find, and of course, some people can't practice it with anyone, with themselves or with others. And of course, that's a challenge. But as, as I'm working on practicing kindness with myself, how can I relate that to other people? If I'm experiencing these emotions, if I'm struggling to do A, B, or C in my life, how can I give space for someone else in a relationship that might be struggling with those sort of same things? Because so much of, we know what we carry with us is invisible, that we it's not shouted from the rooftops. It's things that are happening internally to us that aren't uh, actually evident uh, to, to other people. And so, you know, how do I practice that that patience or that kindness um, with them? Or if I'm practicing it with others and I can always be forgiving of others, or I can always sort of look at others and, and be advocates for them or see their trauma or their pain um, and be able to help continue to see their humanity, even when they're behaving in ways that I don't agree with. How can I also say how that might be true for me? as well. Um, right. And, and how do I sort of hold that together? Because I feel like this idea of loving kindness and, and practicing it towards ourselves and towards others is the way that invites this sort of us in a relationship instead of the sort of self-preservation that happens so often in conflict or sometimes the, uh, the them preservation that is that my needs are dangerous to the relationship. So it's all about someone else that actually practicing this us preservation is giving both of us a little bit of the benefit of the, of the doubt, right? Giving both of us a little bit of patience and kindness um, when we're having a hard day or when we're struggling or when we're behaving or acting in a way that doesn't seem proportionate, as you say, uh, to what's sort of happening. Yeah, I really, I really like that. And when we can bring it into our body to have a felt sense, we can kind of amplify that. And there's an exercise that came to mind when you were talking and it's this exercise that sometimes I'll invite um, you know, groups that I'm working with. And it's where you ask them to put their hands over their heart and kind of with their eyes open or closed, um, kind of visualize somebody that brings you a lot of joy, someone that automatically kind of the, the warm feelings and love comes up and kind of spread that there. And then put your arms out and offer that same kind of felt sense to those that you're having disagreements with or may not have that with. That's the external part. Or if you're having troubles bringing it, that kind of loving kindness to yourself, start with your hands out with the loving kindness with the person that automatically brings that to your mind and bring it to your own heart. So it's bringing that kind of thought process and having it felt through visualization, touch, Touch is very, very powerful um, with the nervous system. So using touch, um, hugs of yourself, there's lots of different tools and techniques that from a neurobiological standpoint help our nervous system to regulate as well as you know, visualizations that can be helpful to bring that kind of loving kindness to ourselves and spreading it to others. 
Wow. Well, that is just brilliant, Colette. I really deeply appreciate all of your insight. You're just you're just such a delightful person, and to hear all the great work that you're doing in the world. So grateful to have you on the podcast today. Uh, quickly, can you tell us if we want to find out more about your work or what you're up to, um, where we can go to read what you're writing or check in on your research or do you have social media presence or where, where would you send, send our listeners right now? Sure. There are a couple places. Um, one is I'm um, on Twitter and it's at Colette Rausch, one word. And soon I will be on the website <laughs> for the uh, Mary Hogg Center for Reconciliation. Um, so keep an eye out for that space as, as we work together there. Um, and then I have a, there's a couple websites that have different things. One is the speakingtheirpeace.org, www.speakingtheirpeace.org. If you want to hear stories from people in the field, on war and peace. These are stories um, that are powerful that um, we were able to capture. And then um, I have ColetteRausch.com, which is just everything else. Well, I really encourage our listeners to go over and check all of those resources out. And again, Colette, I just want to thank you again for, for spending this hour with us on the Dangerous Love Podcast. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And thank you for your, for your book and bringing that out into the world. Thank you so much. All right. You've been listening to Dangerous Love Podcast. Aloha. Aloha.